And so as we settle in, go ahead and open uh, your Bible, if you have it, uh, to Nehemiah chapter 6, uh, where today uh, we're going to get to celebrate uh, alongside uh, the people of God, really uh, the completion of the wall amidst, as we've seen over and over again, uh, the continued opposition and fear tactics of those uh, that, that wish to see the work abandoned along with the opposition uh, of the enemy, uh, both externally, as we've seen in that opposition. But even last week, we looked and saw that, man, there is uh, this internal opposition of, of sin that wishes, and the enemy would want nothing more than its sin to infiltrate and wreak havoc amongst God's people. And so really quickly, let me just remind us of some of the marks of opposition we've seen throughout our time in Nehemiah. Really, uh, as we look at these marks of opposition, you're going to notice that uh, because uh, Satan only has one game plan, uh, and it's a defeated game plan, but he just keeps using it over and over again, right? Uh, and so we're going to see some similar marks or similar, uh, the, uh, of the same opposition even today. And so if you recall from the story, as God's people begin the work, uh, Sambalit, Tobiah, man, they don't like what's going on. And so at first, they, they protest in the form of taunting, right? The, the initial response is, man, uh, man, God's, the, the, these Jews are a weak people, they're ashamed people, man, they're a broken down people. There's no way they can build the wall. And even if they do, it's not going to be very strong. And so they taunt God's people. It doesn't just happen once. They continually taunt God's people. The next way, the next mark of opposition that we saw is that uh, as they build it, because again, they just continue the work, right? They continue the work that God has called them to. We see that they denounce the work by claiming it to be rebellion. They, they begin to make claims that, man, these people are rebelling uh, against, uh, man, uh, those that rule over them. They move on to even plots of aggression that took the form of saber rattling. They start to show their military strength and march in front of God's people. But God's people just continue to build the wall. But not only that, I said there's external opposition, but we also, we've already seen, man, there's, there's internal things going on, right? We see marks of human limitation. While God has empowered and called them to the work, Man, they are limited. They are only, uh, man, they, they, they have human strength. And so maybe their backs are a little sore. Maybe uh, their legs are tired. They're worn out from even a good work. But there's also emotional drain and everything being thrown at them. And emotionally, they're worn out and tired. And yet Nehemiah continues to do two things. He continues to pray and he continues to call the people to the work. And then last week we saw that, man, the the mark of opposition was this sin uh, that was within the camp that was seeking to enslave. uh, They were seeking uh, these opportunities to enslave one another, to uh, require interest from one another, which uh, according to Deuteronomy was a sin for God's people. And yet through it all, God has been faithful, has He not? He has been faithful to use Nehemiah and His people to continue the work. 
I love uh, Nehemiah 4, verse 6. It, it states that in the midst of the opposition, they simply built the wall. And, and as we look at the text today, we're going to see, man, in similar fashion, they're going to continue to just build the wall. And in our own lives, as we think about what it means to be the church, we too, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of struggle, are to continue to respond the same. We are to respond to the work that God has given us, that He has commissioned us to. And even as we press into that, what we must realize is that while, uh, man, it is a good work, there is always a deeper work taking place. And that God is unifying. He is reviving and rebuilding the hearts and lives of His people so that they might display His glory and share in the hope of His grace. You see, God is always looking to do a greater and deeper work in and through you. We've said it from week one. This is a story that's more than about the rebuilding of walls. It's about the rebuilding and the revival of God's people. I shared last week that to truly revive and rebuild the brokenness around us. We must first realize that it's ultimately God who restores, right? But we have a part to play. It says that because if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been reconciled unto God. And then you are empowered to be what? A minister of reconciliation. We all have a part in this co-laboring of displaying God's kingdom. But to truly revive and rebuild the brokenness around us, we must uh, uh, do, man, uh, a work that is not always an easy work, but a good work of allowing God to reveal, to expose, and to heal the brokenness inside of us. You see, the external means nothing if the internal is broken and dead. And if you don't believe me, just like, man, what does Jesus constantly say to the Pharisees who externally looked, man, like they had it all together? He said, no, you're, the outside looks good, but the inside is messy and broken and dead. The outside is whitewashed, but the inside is full of dead bones. And so in the midst of the opposition and the midst of the good work, let us not lose sight of one another. Let us not lose sight of what God is wanting to do in and through each of us in the life of this church family. And may we continue to be about the building of a kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel, the discipling of one another, and stepping into the mission God has called us into. You know, for us, we, we talk about it, kind of our vision for Center Church is that we want to be good neighbors to Brenham. So, man, for us, man, are we setting our gaze first upon God, but then on what He has called us into? Because guess what? Like even, and we're going to see it through our time today, even through all of this, opposition will continue in the midst of the work. Although the enemy has been ultimately defeated and Christ holds ultimate authority, the enemy continually is trying to wreak havoc in not simply the world at large, but specifically in the life and heart of the church. Which includes you, if you're a follower of Jesus. And so we might ask, why is this? And so I'll, we, I think we know why. It's been the theme of this series, right? 
like opposition is going to come, but the enemy is defeated. And so with that before us, let's look now at Nehemiah 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. It says this. Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together in Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should I stop the work while I leave it? Why why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalot for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I said to him, then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you have, or no such things as you have say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. All right. So as we begin, as we enter into this text, I want to start with some interaction because I was gone for a month, uh, and we haven't had any in a while where I ask a question and then y'all enthusiastically respond back, right? Sometimes begrudgingly, but we'll make it. Uh, I'm going to start with a question because I want us to, man, really as we enter the text, to really, um, yeah, engage it in a bit of a different way. So I want you to think for a moment about what you fear and what you do to avoid it. What do you fear and what do you do to avoid it? All right, that's enough time thinking about it. What do you fear? What's something you fear? Failure. Yeah. Man, we're already like, I was expecting like snakes first, you know, (laughs) just jumping right in. But that's okay. Failure. Yeah. What else? A little louder. Rejection. Heights. Yeah. Success, loneliness, disappointment. Man, y'all are just deep, deep today. So what do you do to avoid it? Isolate. What else? What do you do to avoid it? Yeah, perform, work more. Blame others. Oh man, that's a good, we like that one, don't we? We all fear things. Big and small, right? Sometimes those are relative things too, right? Like something big for me might not be that big of a deal for you, you know? I hate snakes. Some people love snakes. They're wrong, but they love them, right? 
And so as I thought about that, you know, just I'm not going to go as deep yet. Uh, but man, I, you know, for me, like when I fear something, when something scares me, uh, man, my first uh, thought uh, my is I just need to run faster than at least one person, maybe two. Right. So if something happens that scares me and I need to get out of there, it's hey, look out for numero uno. Right. Like, let's go. You better keep up. Some of y'all know uh, when I was uh, younger, I was hanging out with some friends and uh, man, my, my old stomping grounds of Clifton, Texas. And uh, you don't have anything to do there because there's only two red lights. So that kind of ex- shows you what there's nothing to do other than go hang out at the river. And so we were there one night. We're hanging out. And all of a sudden we hear the most ferocious dog I've ever heard growling and barking. And it's just getting closer. And so there's five or six of us. Then there was just one because I was gone. Right. And I'm trucking it to the vehicle. And in my mind, all I know is as long as I beat them, I'm good. I'm going to get in the car and start it up so we can go. But they better hurry up. And I get to the car and I'm panting and I'm breathing and and I'm first, first place right here. And I hear laughter. And I start to walk back and I notice that this huge dog that I was so afraid of was just a tiny little puppy. (laughs) It was so nice and sweet, right? But like, that's what we do, like fear when it hits, man, we will do uh, when fear comes, man, it will make you do things that you would never expect or do otherwise. Right. Like we seek to avoid things when we fear. We run from things we uh, we hide, right? I mean, that's the story of Genesis 3, right? Like uh, when, once, when uh, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, it says their eyes are open and they realize their brokenness. And so what do they do? Man, they go to hide. They try to cover up. You, some of y'all said it, man. We, you, you project, you perform. We seek to blame and point the finger. Man, how many, like, in, I think this is really true. We've seen the scope of this over the last few years. Man, because we fear, we'll hoard, right? We'll hoard things. How, how many, like, y'all remember the toilet paper famine, right? Like, it was like, everybody was like, I don't know why it was that one thing, right? But like, that's what we went for. Man, in a culture of excess, man, we often live in fear that there's not going to be enough. Man, fear will make you compromise, right? We, we saw that in the text last week. Man, these people are making compromises because they fear. We'll compromise and, and walk in sin because we fear. We, we compromise by placing others in the way of danger instead of ourselves, right? Somebody's got to go. You go ahead and take the fall. Man, we even run to good things as an avenue of escape, right? We overwork, we overindulge. Kingdom work can even become an idol that we worship in place of the one who rules over the kingdom. You see, the thing about fear is that fear wishes to not simply conquer us. It wishes wishes to rule over us, to enslave us and to put a stop. Not simply to what we do, but who we believe that we are in Christ. Because the enemy knows if he can make us fear, he can get our eyes away from our calling as God's display people. 
And so in the midst of the great and continual work that Nehemiah and the people of God have accomplished, even in the face of opposition, the enemy, specifically the people that we've seen in the story who find themselves, and really, uh, man, uh, Sambala, Tobiah, uh, Gershom that we see in the text today, man, they're scared. And so they're responding in fear. They're seeking in light of that to make God's people fear. As a last ditch effort to bring about defeat. And even as we see in the text today. Man they want to bring about death. For while the work continues. The enemy is angry. And they decide to throw everything else they have to stop things. Before the doors are hung on the city walls. And really what we find in this first part of the text. Is that their effort to bring about fear and defeat. Comes in two different ways. It comes by the fear of man and the fear of false accusation. And so I want to take a moment to break these tactics down while also uh, in the midst of it, looking at Nehemiah's response, because I believe uh, that 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 his response is key for us in our own lives as we are threatened to turn our eyes away from the finished work of Jesus and to look at all that's going on around us. Any of you feel that today? Like, like, how many of you uh, fear the gas pumps lately? Man. How many of you find yourself fearing the future? Or the exposing of your past? How many of you find yourself in fear of what you see around you? And yet the thing about that, in every instance, Christ reigns in sovereign control and authority. And, and guess what? He is not only, he not only reigns, man, his kingdom is expanding. I heard uh, a, a pastor preach recently and he said, look, like God's kingdom, man, he, it's expanding. Like the enemy, it, he, he knows his time is limited, right? Not only is he in sovereign control and authority, what we need to realize today is in the midst is that Jesus, it, it's only his perfect love that casts out all fear. It's not your isolation. It's not your performance. It's not you know, your, the way that you blame. It's not the way that you run and hide. None of those things will provide what you need. Only Jesus casts out fear. You see, throughout Scripture, God's Word, we find 364 specific commandments to not fear. It's pretty, impor- it's pretty important. And so let's look at tactic one, which is the fear of man. So uh, and Nehemiah's enemies come to him and they say, hey, uh, this project's been going along. Why don't you come over here and let's have a conversation? Well, we need to talk about this. So we need you to leave Jerusalem. We need you to leave the work and we need you to come uh, to another town, to another place so that we can talk this through. You see, their goal here, while to get him away from the work, is also to, uh, man, to instill in him a fear of man. They want Nehemiah to submit to them. They, They want Nehemiah to fear them as an authority. They want to distract him during a critical time. But also, when Nehemiah discerns this in the text, he also, he says, look, they're also trying to do him harm. So they say, hey, Nehemiah, why don't you come and meet us? These two are the schemes of our enemy. He seeks to make us fear 
Satan looks for any avenue to distract us from what God has called us to. And he, at all times, is looking to do us harm. But, but, but as you see that, and as you see this tactic of fear, look at Nehemiah's response in the text. I, I love it. it. Nehemiah gives it no time. Essentially what Nehemiah tells them, he says, look, the work of God is important and you're not. So I'm not going to come away from the wall. I, I'm not going to leave. Man, today in your life, to whom or what are you giving your time, energy, and emotions to because of fear and a lack of faith in God's sovereignty to rule? As you think about that, as you think about to whom, man, don't you realize that it's just a way to distract you from the work that God wants to do in and through you? And I think as a pastor and even as a follower of Jesus, I find that often we give far too much of our focus to people that wish to rule over us and call us away from the work of God. And one of the problems I see in the life of the church right now is that far too many Christians are running to others as an authority to fix, bring relief and hope to their fear rather than running to Jesus who is the only one who can calm the storms that rage in our hearts and around us. We would rather go to social media than prayer. To the latest influencer, politician, or niche niche expert in a field rather than pouring over the scriptures for the good news that our hearts really need. Honestly, what that is, man, we're just kind of lazy. We want the quick fix. And in a culture filled with fear, we as God's people are to stand in faith and hope, pointing to a king who rules, reigns, and casts out all fear. But the problem with this is that, man, you and I, we can't truly be on mission for God when we're allowing ourselves to be ruled by fear at the same time. Man, it's specifically the fear of man. And and that, like, that hits me. One of the things that I did in the month of February is I, man, spent time just processing, like, my own tendency to fear man. I read a book on, man, what is, you know, why we need to, 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 when God is little and people are big. You see, it hits me because I struggle there. I think if we're honest, we all in some form or fashion struggle there. Like, I want approval. I, I, I want acceptance. I fear rejection. Well, something I say all the time when I talk with people is, man, everybody loves Kyle. Like, everybody loves me. And I honestly believe it. (laughs) Right? But while I'll say that, man, I struggle when I feel like people don't like me. And I'll wrestle with that and I'll let it eat me up. And I won't just let it eat me up. I'll try to perform and win them over and do what, and, and, you know, and bend over backwards. And I'll take my eyes off Jesus. You see, we like Nehemiah must come to understand our mission and our source of security and hope. And in turn, set our gaze on Jesus and not the wind and the waves around us. May we have no time for it. 
God's got work for us to do. Let us allow God to be God and people to be people. And in doing so, what happens is we can actually walk in the freedom that we've been called to. So that's tactic one. Tactic two is false accusation. Really, it's rooted in kind of this fear of approval. This fear of, of, of being seen as right. And so Nehemiah's enemies, they continue. It says that they send him four letters saying, hey, come talk to us. And he won't give them any time for it. And so the fifth letter, they send an open letter, which is a letter that was to be read in public in front of Nehemiah and everyone that would listen. And man, the contents of this letter, although false, made major accusations of treason. That if sent to and believed by the ruling authorities would have brought about a swift end, not just to the work, but to Nehemiah's life and the lives of God's people. If King Artaxerxes would hear that, oh, actually, Nehemiah tricked you, and he's just wanting to be king, man, Artaxerxes is coming, right? And he's bringing an army with him. And so they do this, and the goal of this we see in the first part of verse 9 is to frighten the people because what uh, the enemy believes is if they fear, they'll stop the work. But again, let's look at Nehemiah's response, and it's really twofold. First, he casts off the contents of the letter as false. He says, look, you just conjured all that up in your mind. There is no truth to it. Really what he's doing in the moment, he's saying, hey, enemy, I'm caught. That's a lie. And I think for us, like we need to hear this today, man, the enemy is caught like he's the father of lies. We need to be like Nehemiah and be like, hey, no, you you tried that yesterday. It was a lie yesterday. It's a lie today and it's going to be a lie tomorrow. He quit trying to make these things be conjured up in my mind, in my heart so that I act upon. No, you're a liar. But then he does something else that I believe, man, is just as important in the second half of verse 9 is that after he discerns the hearts and the intentions of the enemy, he turns to God again. And he does what he's done throughout the entire book. He prays. You see, he asks God to strengthen his hands. What he's doing, he's saying, God, man, I need you to give me strength right now. And they're accusing me of things. They're accusing your people of things. Man, give us strength to hope and trust in you and continue the work. You see, in life, we all have moments where we feel wrongly accused, do we not? You ever feel lied about or misunderstood? And when you face those moments, how do you often respond? Like if you're really honest. And I think if we're honest, usually what we do, not all the time, we seek to justify ourselves, do we not? No, 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 you, you, don't, you don't understand. Like, I actually did that and we seek to justify where we've been misunderstood. We, we, another way, we, we return fire, right? You ever feel misunderstood or lied about or, uh, man, someone come to you with these things and you're like, all right, you're going to do that. Let's go. Gloves are off. Usually it's verbal. Maybe it's physical, right? You look at your children sometimes like it's like, well, that's it. Like that's what's happening. They just attack. You return fire. 
But another thing we do in the midst of this, sometimes we just succumb to the accusations. You ever just lay down? You're like, yep, that's it. You just allow that lie just to, man, just entrench itself in and you say, yeah. You just quit. You quit so that you can be liked or accepted or seen as, as someone who doesn't rock the boat of culture. But again, if we're to be a people who walk in obedience to the calling and mission as God's people, we have to look to Jesus. Who in the face of death and accusations of others, it says he didn't utter a word. But he sought that sought to justify and to vindicate his innocence. Instead, what did he do? He prayed. He prayed for God's will to be done. And then as he's on the cross and he's being accused and mocked, what does he do? He says, forgive them. May that be our response. May we quit spending so much time seeking to justify ourselves in petty matters and instead be a people of conviction that cry out for God's strength and for Him to strengthen our hands for the work. And in the midst of that, may we be quick to forgive. So with that, let, let's continue. Let's, I'm gonna, we're going to look at verses 10 through 14 and see another tactic used by the enemy. It says this. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of uh, Mehetabel, uh, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should a man, should such a man as I run away and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to the things that they did and also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. All right, so once Samuel and Tobiah realize that Nehemiah will not be brought to defeat through the fear of man or accusation, they move to draw his focus away by fearing for his own life in the hopes that he will morally discredit himself before God and the people that he's leading. And so tactic three is really the fear of death. And so what they do is they hire a man uh, named Shemaiah who holds some semblance of authority, but really what we see is he turns out to be a false prophet. And they hire him to do their bidding. And so Nehemiah goes to his house and he's told, he says, look, your enemies are coming to kill you. And then he, then he moves and he says, so if you want to find safety, get off the wall, get away from the work. If you want to find refuge from your assassins, go into the temple and hide behind its doors. Which, I mean, when you, you hear that, that sounds like a pretty good plan, Right? Like, could there be a safer place? But you see, it's a plan of destruction. In our own lives, our greater enemy has, has held the same plan before us since Genesis 3. 
See, he seeks to draw us into things that look good, that in truth may look worshipful, faith-filled, and godly, and yet only lead to death and destruction. I mean, that was the lie in the garden, right? Like, you won't die if you eat this fruit. Actually, you'll get to be like God. Where really the lie was like they, they believed they could be God. Just, just eat it. So you, it's good that you would be like God, right? No, it led to destruction because we are created and He is creator. See, in our lives, we believe if we perform enough, if we know enough, if we do enough, if we're good enough, we can find safety. And so what do we do? Man, because we fear these things we perform, we try to check all the boxes. But even in the midst of this tactic, we have to, again, let's look at Nehemiah who refutes the offer in two ways. First, Nehemiah understands that the true authority over his life and the work he's been called to is not in those who seek his life, but the God who gives him life. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus today, you serve and are cared for by an authority that is greater than any other authority. That's why Jesus says, hey, don't don't fear those that can kill the body. Fear God who, who, who can send body and soul to hell. I, I love what he says at the beginning of verse 11. He, he says, should a man such as I run away? This is not some uh, machismo or prideful bravado. This is an overflow of faith-filled dependence and a secure identity. You see, Nehemiah understands whether he lives or dies, he will serve the God of Scripture. Man, may we live and respond with the same spirit-empowered gusto. For the enemy has been defeated. Guess what? We, we have no fear in death. For those who are in Christ, there is no fear of death. It no longer holds the power over us. You see, we fear God. That is not so. And I want you to hear that, man, today, if you're an unbeliever, if you haven't, man, given your heart, if you haven't laid down and said, God, man, I'm looking everywhere else. I'm performing. Man, you still have to fear death. But the good news is that Jesus is the way for you to have life. For he took death upon himself and he rose in victory. Look to him today. Secondly, Nehemiah rejects this offer because he knows it'll be a sin for him to enter the temple in that way. Because Nehemiah is not a Levitical priest. And so uh, it says at the end of verse 11, he says, uh, although he understands where his authority lies, he also understands his limitations according to the word of God. And while entering the temple would seem like a very spiritually dependent thing to do, it would actually be an act of disobedience that would lead to death. So I think today we need to hear this in life. Um, if you're as a follower of Jesus, in life, you can do a lot of things that look really spiritual for selfish reasons. Masked as ministry, you can run. A, you can run to a lot of good and biblical things in the hopes that they'll satisfy and save, and yet walk in disobedience because you're trusting in those things to give you identity, security, and safety rather than God. It happens all throughout Scripture. 
Even to the, man, like the fathers of the faith, right? Like even Moses would strike a rock when he wasn't supposed to. It looked really good. It had worked before, but he wasn't looking to God. This is why we have to be a people of prayer. This is why we need to be a people steeped in God's word. And this is why we need to be deeply, not not just a part of, but deeply committed to and in transparent relationship with others in the body of Christ. It's why the church is to be the church and you are to commit to it. Because you can do a lot of good things with wrong motivations. And guess what? We need the Spirit of God to convict us of those things. But also, one of the avenues by which God uses in His grace is He uses the church. Because guess what? We get to see one another. The good and the bad. And we get to come to one another in grace and say, Hey, I think your motivations are wrong. We get to lovingly, lovingly, Call one another to repentance and faith. That's why, like, not only, like, that's why, you know, like, Haley is such a gift to me. Because Haley knows me. And so there's moments where I'm just like, fear, the fear cycle is just like going. And she's like, hey, hey, hey. I think you're, one, calm down, breathe. I think you're believing some lies, Kyle. And sometimes I'm like, no, 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 like it's real bad, like everything's going to end poorly. And she's like, well, well, let's talk about that. Like, what does God's word say? Or, or hey, you got to trust in this. Or, hey, man, you're looking at that, but look at what's going on over here. Like, set your eyes on Jesus. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's why we need one another. Because we can look at other things real fast, right? We need the church. And then it's following this rejection. What we see Nehemiah, he, again, he prays. And he trusts that God will be the ultimate judge and vindicator of his enemies. So we've seen these three tactics. Let's close by looking at the results of people's dependent obedience. We're going to read 15 through 19. It says this. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month. Elul. In the 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. All right, so what we find in the midst of a lot of names, in the midst of the threats being made made towards the work, is that God's people find success. And they finished the wall in 52 days, which like that, that's a huge feat. It's a record pace to finish the wall. And in light of this, like, look at what takes place in verse 16. It says that their enemies and the nations surrounding them were brought to fear because they knew not, hey, look how great they are. They knew that God had done a mighty work. 
You see, God's kingdom in the midst of threats and oppositions doesn't stop. Even at the end of the text, we, we still see that they seek to oppose and build an army of offense. I mean, so why are we surprised in our own lives, right? Like that the, the enemy, like it just, the, the, the opposition continues to come. But even so, the kingdom is displayed. The enemy's tactics of fear are turned on their heads. And the nations see the power of God at work through the people of God. And the result of this amazing work, especially in light of the cross and the finished work of Jesus, should bring us today to not only worship, but I hope that we would know that we're called to the same. The enemy wishes for and seeks out ways to make us cower in fear. But in turn, we are to continue to move forward as people who are not simply saved from sin, but are called and empowered to fight and display the kingdom of God through building and blessing. We do not have to fear for Jesus came in perfect love and he casts away our fear. May we take heart and take courage today. You see, if darkness trembles at the name of Jesus, if death has truly been defeated, if sin only has the power we give to it, then what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for, church? Why are we still walking in fear? Let it not be. Let us walk in dependent faith, proclaiming in word and deed the victory of our risen King. In the midst of a world that is cowering and projecting fear at every turn, may we display the good news in ways that not only rejects fear, but proclaims hope. In the midst of a world that seeks to accuse and blame, may we seek to forgive. And in a world that seeks to find refuge and hope in false gospels, may we seek to point to the only refuge that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to. So today, what do you fear and what do you seek? What are you doing to avoid it? May my prayer for you is that, uh, that you would run to Jesus today. No matter what it is. That you would run to Him. And that in turn, like you would receive His perfect love. And that you would walk in boldness. you would walk in forgiveness, that you would walk in deeper faith. And that we would go and that we would live the lives we're called to live for God's glory. So I'm going to have the team come back up and man, I want us to spend some time in response. And so I'm going to ask those questions again today. Where do you fear? Today, how are you being drawn away? Along with that, like in your fear, are you seeking to draw others away? Are you seeking to justify? Like what is your fear causing you to run to that seems safe that's actually sin? How might you need to repent today? How might you need to turn your gaze, set your gaze on Jesus? And so I, I want to give you some time to reflect on that. They're just going to play for a bit. And, and, and man, as you like, spend some time in prayer. And if you need prayer for something, like I'll be up here, uh, man, and I'd love to pray with you. Today, if you're sitting there and you're like, man, I, I've never given my life to Jesus and I'm running, like I, I fear everything. And I keep turning to all these other things and they don't work. Man, come talk to me. 
love to talk to you about what it means to just cast all your cares, all your fears, all your brokenness and your sin at the feet of Jesus. Find life and healing. It's only found in Him. I want to invite you to repent. I want to invite you to to, to cry out for God to strengthen your hands. To pray for, for, for this church. Then I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you, we do this every week, to come and share in communion. But as you share in communion, man, remember that, that Jesus is our perfect model of this. For His face was set towards Jerusalem. Set towards the cross. He despised the shame and He joyfully went to the cross. He, he laid down His will so that He might uh, say, God, Your will be done. He hung on the cross and as he was accused and blamed and spit upon and mocked, he said, forgive him. And he died the death we deserved. But he rose in victory. That's good news. That gives us life. That casts away fear. Death no longer has the sting it once did. So I want to invite you, if you're following Jesus, to do that. If you're not, man, um, man, we'd ask that you not, because, man, this is a, uh, man, uh, we believe this is uh, something that, that is so dear to us because it means so much. Because it not only it cost his life. So I'm going to pray, and they're, they're going to play for just a bit, and then we're going to sing a song uh, called Tremble that really proclaims, like, Jesus makes the darkness tremble, Jesus casts out fear. May that be our cry. So God, I pray that we would be a people that don't walk in fear. That we, uh, our eyes, our gaze is set upon You who reigns in authority. Sovereignly over everything, even as opposition comes. Holy Spirit, give us uh, ears that hear, hearts that discern the lies of the enemy, the lies of culture. And God, let us proclaim them for what they are and let us then proclaim that there is better news. That we would trust in You deeply. That we would, uh, man, bring You our fears. That we would no longer run and hide or blame or whatever it is that we do. But that we would come to You. It's when we come to you that man, our, 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 our fear is cast away. Because we find hope and rest in you and you alone. God, I pray for anyone in this room today that doesn't know you. That, that, that they would come to know you. They would cry out. That they would uh, seek out someone to talk to it about. God, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to not fear Make us a celebratory people because we don't have anything to fear. In Jesus' name.